Hello and welcome to podcast number four of the Sitcom Club. Joining myself, Mooncat, as ever, are Boggan Strovia. Hello. And Dr. Christian Troy. Hello. And this week we are discussing the 1997 BBC sitcom Chalk, written by the now Doctor Who and Sherlock Supremo Stephen Moffat. DCT, if you can give us uh, a quick summary of Chalk, what it is uh, and what it's all about. Based on Moffat's experience as a teacher and as well as the fact that his father was a headmaster of a school, we have Galfast High, which consists of, for the most part, a number of somewhat unstable teachers barely focusing on the pupils themselves. We have David Bamber as Eric Slatt, initially in the first series, appearing more often than not rather unfairly compared to John Cleese in Faulty Towers, running a chaotic and rather run-down school, whereas in the second series there is a name to humanise him. The BBC, in their infinite wisdom, decided, based on the reactions from the audience in the recording in the series one in 1996, to recommission it before it even went out. So we ended up with two rather slightly different series, albeit still following the same characters. Grand, thank you for that, DCT. Um, now, before we ask uh, each other's opinions, I did a little bit of research in the archive, and I pulled out a couple of reviews from the TV critic of the Times at this point in 1997, Matthew Bond. Now, here's a couple of bits and pieces from his two reviews. First of all, he wrote in regards to episode one, it is absolutely no fun being episode one of a new sitcom. Go on then, we sneer, make us laugh. Not surprisingly, many sitcoms never recover from the experience and are not heard of again. The prospects for chalk, however, are brighter. Now he goes on to draw a comparison with Please Sir, which was 25 years earlier, and generally he speaks quite highly of the first episode and talks of its potential. Within a few weeks, his second review is somewhat less positive. It begins by saying... Just about the only thing that might rescue Chalk from sitcom oblivion is the news that the teaching organisations have taken officially against it. Not funny, they say. Not funny at all. Matthew Bond then goes on to discuss that Slat has been, in his words, annoyingly manic for five episodes without a word of explanation. So why, come the six, should we care that it all turns out to be the fault of his domineering mother? He makes an interesting point at the end of his review when he says that the teaching organisations are half right. Slat has no credible basis in the teaching profession, but far more importantly, he has no credible basis in the human race. And what we don't believe in, we rarely find funny. So, if we take that as a sort of launch pad, Boganstrovia, what were your thoughts initially on Chalk? Well, I thought it was a uh, sitcom outside its time, really, with Chalk. As you said, each series is different, whereas the first one may seem traditional. The humour in the series is that it's more crude in the second series itself, but overall it's a sitcom which seems almost ahead of its time. Yeah. In a way it sort of falls between two stools because it is... On the spotlight, it's on BBC One, it's very mainstream, it's got the eyes of the, the mainstream audience upon it. Yeah, it's, it's trying to do a lot of things at once, it's trying to be a little bit edgy, it is post-Watershed, but at the same time, it is playing for laughs. It's not It's not a dark piece, it's not an overtly satirical piece, it is something that's supposed to get big belly laughs. Sometimes, broad comedy 
can sometimes throw the audience the wrong way, sometimes can throw the critics more often than not throws the critics the wrong way. You only have to look at the difference in opinion between the critics' view of something like Mrs. Brown's Boys and the immense audience appreciation that that show gets. Really, with chalk, it doesn't really know what it wants to be. Whether it wants to be the traditional 8.30 sitcom, which is more mainstream, or whether it wants to be a more edgy late night sitcom and really it's problem it's caught between the two and it comes down with a dull fud in between the two times yes uh, and it did begin as a post-watershed sitcom in the old half past nine slot on bbc one and as time went on it became more post-watershed not as a result of it being more edgy but just as a result of the schedules moving it uh, further and further back uh, moving it to behind men behaving badly and all things dcc what are your initial thoughts on chalk i remember enjoying it at the time i think series one i saw more of at the time and then i saw bits of series two so to revisit it was quite a surprise for the most part series one you are brought into the world with a reasonably normal character in the form of new teacher Susie, played by, if not mistaken, Nicola Walker. And initially, you're on her side. But then over the series, I, I found myself not really being on anyone's side as such, because she even came off as slightly... It, it's as if you bring a character into a situation, and although it may be a chaotic situation, bringing this normal person in who wants to make things right actually just makes the chaos worse whereas in the second series which i found altogether very different indeed far more of a consistent effort to make the character of eric slat the deputy headmaster human whereas in the in the first series he's very much referred to as a oh you're barely a human being in fact it, there's a very telling line it's almost a pitch essentially in, in the very first episode of series one where Susie's asked how her first day at school was, and she says, kids were fine, shame about the teachers. And I think that's almost like a prototype equivalent of Greenwing, in a sense, in a, in a, in a different way, where the focus is on the, the establishment, not the people who are, who are involved with it. And with Series 2, it, it's interesting because Moffat basically put forward that he never heard so much laughter in recordings for the first series, which is one of the reasons why they decided to give it a second series before the sec the first was even broadcast. But in series two, I, I didn't really get the impression that there were a huge amount of laughs. Obviously, there must, it might have been a post situation. But with series one, there were quite a few gaps, especially in the first episode. Whereas in series two, the laughter track was far more noticeable, I thought. Quite a few familiar laughs uh, often heard on various other BBC sitcoms. So I certainly enjoy revisiting it. I would have to say, exploring series two, I prefer that over series one, certainly. I think it had far more of a, a linear narrative behind it. And I found by having at least making, at this point, what sort of an anti hero or an antagonist, uh, a very slap, making him far more empathetic and human in series two made it all the more and more enjoyable experience. I've off a quote here from Stephen Moffat. I believe this is an interview that he gave to BAFTA a couple of years ago. He said of Chalk, Of any sitcom I've ever witnessed being made, and I've seen loads of them, like Men Behaving Badly and The Vicar of Dibley, Chalk had the biggest laughs on the night. 
As a piece of theatre, it was brilliant in the studio. People came back every week. The audiences were rapturous. The trouble was, when I watched the tape at home, it was far too loud and raucous for TV. Now, just picking up on what you were saying there, DCT, I didn't get that impression, certainly from the first series episodes, I didn't get that impression at all. From the, the first episode of season one, the audience seemed to go quieter towards the end of the show when you've got all the business going on when they're trying to find John Wells and the car park and so on the, the audience is very mute towards the end of that episode and only picks up again when uh, Slat is doing his monologue at the end of the show in the episodes I saw from season 2 the audience did sound louder and a little bit more involved but one thing I was, I was interested in that quotation from Stephen Moffat because as a couple of alternative examples, just last week, and um, we tweeted about this on the Sitcom Club on Twitter, there was an episode of I Being Served being repeated in tribute to Frank Thornton. And this particular episode called Grounds for Divorce had, I think it would be identifiable as maybe around about a dozen or so particularly raucous audience members whose laughs were very, very audible throughout the show and were almost like changing the, the, the sort of atmosphere in a way, it suddenly sounded like it was uh, a live show, like a theatre show, like a Ray Cooney farce. Also, the first episode of Bottom Series 2, where Richie Neddy joined the dating agency, that gets huge reactions from the audience. Again, it seems to be a particular collective as part of the bigger studio audience, and sometimes their, their laughter is, is really overwhelming. In both of those occasions, personally, I really like that. I think it gives an extra dimension, it gives an extra energy to those particular episodes that makes you really feel involved in them with that sort of laughter you do get it in um, sitcoms and you also find it quite a lot in um, entertainment programs that they will single out these people to sort of make it sound bigger so you do get bigger laughs that people were more enjoying it than all the rest of the audience to make it sound like they're having a good time. But sometimes it can sort of um, wash over a programme, but you do get a big laugh in there, and it's almost like it does sound a bit unnatural. Yes, it's sometimes quite noticeable if it is a particular group within an audience. I did read letters in the Radio Times during the final one of Blackadder, Blackadder Goes Forth, and one audience member made a point of writing to the RT to say, in case anybody's wondering why there was so much laughter in those final scenes, it was because there was a group in that studio audience that was just laughing its heads off at everything and anything. Uh, and this particular person was saying that sometimes their laughter was out of place given what was happening on screen given the ending of the show, the last episode. Having watched that programme back, I don't particularly notice that. I'm not sure if there's been some redubbing going on there to perhaps reduce the audience laughter. Sometimes you do notice that in particular shows, you'll see that a particular scene gets a huge laugh. We just saw a repeat of Whatever Happened to the Like Lads episode 1 on BBC4 last week, and there's one particular line delivered to James Boland that gets an enormous laugh from the studio audience and carries on into the next scene and it's, you can hear carefully that there's, there's been some tweaking going on there to to bring it to a sort of a natural conclusion rather than just let it carry on uh, and start um, drowning out any dialogue. DCT, what are your thoughts on audience 
laughter and succumbs. I mean, generally speaking, how do you find it? Are you someone who prefers the sound of a studio audience? Do you prefer perhaps the more sort of what you might call the BBC Two HBO approach? I am quite fond of the laughter if it's natural. If it isn't the same BBC laughter track that you pick up on quite easily, you could very easily sit and watch a whole day of UK Gold or Dave and recognize the same laughter track on most of the repeats at one point or another. The British Empire was pretty bad for that. Bottom, on the other hand, we mentioned Bottom earlier, the episode in which Richie and Eddie go to the hotel and Eddie's in drag, Adrian Edmondson's in drag, that's got some very distinct, definitely live laughter on that. Especially when, oh, don't pop them and <laughs> smoking the pipe and whatnot, making the quacking noises. Whereas there was some rather noticeable moments in Chalk. That, there are some very clever lines. There are some very good lines, and they rightfully get appropriate laughter that, from what I can gather, seems totally natural and there on the spot. But then again, it, it ends up becoming stilted because it then drops in the same laughter track. And this is the trouble with a fair few of the sort of BBC sitcoms, especially ones I've noticed more so even of the sort of 90s, where there was only about three or four different types of laughter. So you would end up in a situation where the same laughter track could be used within a few minutes from each other. And it's, that can be quite jarring. Now, obviously, I can understand, in, in the age now where people potentially binge more so on, on comedy, uh, in the age of DVD and, and having marathons on satellite, you probably notice it more. But the, even then when you've got episodes of sitcoms that used exactly the same laughter track within scenes of each other, it does seem very lazy. In that sort of laughter, we will get, say, uh, one or two of the same sort of people without revealing any names. We know people who do go and see certain shows and they sort of dominate the laughter you hear one voice certainly there's one or two laughs which i'd be very intrigued to compile i might, I might even do this at one point there are certain laughs there's one that's featured in early episodes of red dwarf where it's a little male snigger where it's <laughs> like that and there's there's another one which is um kind of a, a female squeal which is <laughs> like that it, and that that's a very noticeable one I think I actually I think I know which one you're, you're speaking of, and I've heard that one many a time, going all the way back to early episodes of You've Been Framed. Was that 1990, 91, whereabouts? There's a superb sketch on one episode of French and Saunders where they spoof a General Carla Lane style sitcom and make a complete joke of the laughter track with Dawn French doing about four different versions and then she just keeps piling them on and on and on so you you just get the you get the the laugh which is ha oh yeah it's in the background so, and although it's just a really superb moments like that but it, it but it is it's so true they especially with the bbc sitcoms and even i even ironically that i i distinctly remember those being overused in absolutely fabulous and indeed in french and saunders own series and i'd like to think in fact i think 
if I remember rightly, there is at one point they use a laughter track in that laughter track sketch that might be that female squeal that we mentioned. It's a surprising lack of variation. I uh, would need to revisit maybe some more recent sitcoms to see if, if any of these are still used or still in circulation. But but it is a surprisingly limited... I think most fans of, of comedy, most fans of sitcoms, British sitcoms, there's pretty much a chart, really. You could pretty much identify some or if not all of them. But in Filthy Rich and Cat Flap, there's a spoof game show, which of course is, ooh, sounds a bit rude. Now, they also use... To make the point about audience laughter, they do use um, some short clip audience laughter for the jokes of either Whopper they do. So it also shows in that as well that they're trying to prove to the audience, so yes, we do use this laughter and this is how ridiculous it sounds. So it's sort of breaking that convention to say, yeah, it's there, it is. Yeah. Um, if anybody can track it down, there is uh, an old, 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 say, 30, 31 years self-through videotape called the Kenny Everett Naughty Joke Box. And if you listen to that, you don't even have to listen to it particularly carefully, you'll notice that the can laughter in that is, in fact, the same laugh for every joke being performed by the stand-up comics. It's a, You can hear a male voice laughing, immediately followed by a female voice laughing, and then it's repeated ad infinitum. So at least we don't have that on the UK sitcoms. Of course, with the uh, Kenny Everett thing, that most of the laughter was, of course, an actual crew laughter which worked on the shows, especially during his Thames years. So where you would have him doing, say, his uh, video cassette, the laughter would be missing, so they would have to pad it out with... Oh, that, that particular know. example that yeah. I'm, I'm talking about there, that was at a live recording, I think it was a comedy store. And so there is actually there is a live audience there, but I suspect that perhaps, for whatever reason, the, the audio of the live audience just wasn't up to scratch and they felt that they had to embellish it somewhat. DCT, can you summarise for us some of the themes, some of the recurring angles that feature in Chalk? Consistently throughout Series 1 and Series 2, it's all about mistaken identity and misunderstandings, it seems, from the get-go. For example, in Series 2, in the first episode, once again, in contrast to Series 1's first episode, we see the school through a new pair of eyes, this time Richard Lumsden course was in is it legal which will be a future sitcom club episode uh, in the guise of the character of ronald langham who is a student teacher and there's this misunderstanding that he thinks slat is gay slat thinks he is gay and it keeps playing back and forth in episode two we see miss tripley who is somewhat oversensitive underwhelmed or underwhelming i should say music teacher and there's a case of misunderstanding when, for once, an, an actual antagonist comes to the school. And initially you think everything's going okay for her. And then he basically reveals himself to be not the man that you suspect him to be, hence, and then becomes the antagonist from doing so. Incidentally, in, in that respect, sex is a, is a consistent reoccurrence. In episode three... There's misunderstanding between dentist and a gynecologist, and it all leads to various japes and situations. 
Once again, going back to sex in episode four, you have a sex dream that causes something of a trope, causing a real question of attraction into into place, as well as the episode that also features mob mentality in some respects with the teachers going, oh, well, hang on, you guys are a bit alike. Maybe you do like each other. Episode five, there's a misunderstanding between biology and English in the second scene, which features Eric Slat dissecting a, a rabbit for biology and then the punchline this is an English class which is why none of them have the stomach for it and are all crying and then of course in episode 6 the confusion over the tape that's the thing because series 1 and series 2 are a very different beast series 2 the predominant theme in series 2 is making slat human because even in episode 1 of series 2 there's a in regards to mistaken identity of always oh, this student teacher gay is slat gay he initially makes some relatively homophobic comments, and then as it turns out, it sort of plays out in reverse. Not making it necessarily okay, but it makes it effectively, the character go against his own viewpoint. Then in episode two, we have a situation where, a strangely communal episode in comparison to the others, because Slap punches the antagonist. He punches him. It's, it's vaguely unexpected, because there's this element that's indicated that for years we see in flashback that Slat has been trying to sack this music teacher, the incompetent Miss Tripley, for years. And as it turns out, it's not a case of him having anything against her or anything like that. If, if anything, he ends up promoting her and giving her various extra responsibilities. So it, it's very strange where he even goes, maybe I am a borderline psychotic deputy headmaster on the fast train to nowhere. But as it turns out, it's it's yeah, it's very it's very communal and supportive, which is very unusual uh, up to that point. And then, of course, getting to the finale, getting to episode six of series two, it ultimately reveals that all this time Slat has been mocked for his inability, his sexual inability with his wife Janet, who also works at the school. And of course, revelations arise, and all this time he was in fact protecting the truth from his wife that actually it was her problem and not his. That puts him in a very different light. So it only becomes really appropriate that he's sort of reached full circle. Because in series one, he's just quite a loathsome, unhuman character, a non-human being. It's commented in episode one of series two that, oh, you almost handle that situation like a human being. And that's that's the thing. In series one, there isn't much of any of that. There isn't really an appeal point. And we only really have Susie, who by the end of series one is actually something of a bully, really. If I can come in with um, episode six, uh, the whole of the episode is basically where with a party and then uh, Susie and Dan McGill find the uh, tape in Eric's office and they play it out because Eric's got a playthrough system to the staff room. That because of that, highlighting, like you said, Eric's sort of problem, but it is actually Janet's sort of problem, that it sort of turns from um, more sort of comedy, it turns into not darker, it's got pathos in there with um, Eric and Janet, that they finally realise after so much time sniping at each other, thinking... Oh, well, it's your problem, not my problem, etc. And they basically realise that they can have a sort of 
not only a working relationship, but they can get their actual relationship back on track because they've been truthful and honest about the problem. I think we've spoken before in previous shows about how characters, as a series develops, characters need to have extra traits. They need to be proper three-dimensional people. And it's hard to envisage the character of Slat, for example, progressing as he was in episode one, season one. Exactly as we had the Times reviewer say earlier on, it is unfair quite often to judge a show by its very first episode. But the way that Slat behaves in that first episode, he, he doesn't really come across as a real person. He does come across as a, a caricature. Whereas, as you say, by the time Series 2 comes along, we know more about him, we can sympathise with him at certain times. And, yeah, as you say, I mean, that second episode of Season 2 has got a nice sort of communal feel because it, the, the idea that all the people, all the, the staff, hate each other it isn't really feasible for the long term. Of course, you always have antagonism in any sitcom because it's it's a key element. You've always got to have some sort of conflict, some sort of chaos. But the idea that people actually intensely dislike each other, after a while it just wouldn't be feasible that they would continue to associate with each other. Well, the obvious thing is that, of course, the BBC promoted it as a new faulty turs. Now, like many people have remarked, such as Jeff Evans in his uh, book, The Penguin TV Guide, he observed that he's uh, keen, but also regrettably, unbalanced, tactless, clumsy, snobby, sarcastic, and at times pointlessly aggressive and always prone to errors of judgment, that he was basically an academic version of faulty and that's where it really falls down now with the original plan for slats they wanted angus deaton now of course deaton at that point who was famous for one foot in the grave and kytv now they thought that deaton could bring a more acerbic edge to it but unfortunately he didn't take up the role, meaning that David Bamber had to take over, and that's perhaps why the character changed to a faulty-esque character. Yeah, um, and a couple of things I would say with regards to the comparisons with faulty. First of all, the plot of episode one, series one, with the dead teacher being hidden in the cupboard and so on, and then having to move him around here to there and so on. I can't be the only person who was thinking of the Kipper and the Corpse when I was watching that. And of course, if that's the very first episode of the series, plus you've already had comparisons drawn by the publicity people to Faulty Towers, and people are going to look at that and say, well, this is um, an attempt to create a new Faulty. And it's very, very difficult to get the public on your side if it does seem that this is not quite a carbon copy but if it's trying to take successful elements from something else rather than creating something new the other thing i'd say about that as well is that at some point i think that we could probably do an entire podcast on the subject of shows which have to one degree or another been derailed by people who aren't actually involved in the program at all until the very last stage namely the publicity people because the number of times a show has arrived in the Radio Times and so on and been given a certain angle 
by the, the salespeople, so to speak, which then causes conflict between the writer and the actors and so on. There's quite a few occasions of that. The one that springs to mind for myself is when Harry Enfield did his sketch show for Sky 1 in 2000. I remember getting the Sky Guide in the post, the magazine they used to send out each month, and the way this had been written up, the publicity said, here are the catchphrases which you will be saying when this series begins. And they'd written them all out, here's all the characters and here's all the catchphrases. Now, I don't know about anybody else, but my reaction, my gut reaction to that was, oh, will I? Indeed. And even with the fact that I liked the show, I was one of the few people who <laughs> actually seemed to like it, I resented the fact that I was being told what to think. That is a very, very dangerous thing to do by anyone involved in the publicity of a show. Now, saying with, obviously, Ricky Gervais and Extras, his character does a sitcom, and of course, it is the catchphrase which everyone remembers. Now, that is partly the trouble. If you put out catchphrases to say, these are what you are going to laugh at, people know them. A catchphrase can come from anywhere. It has to be natural. If, say, you were to put out, in the Radio Times, say, at the beginning of Are You Being Served, Mr Humphrey saying, I'm free, people would say, well, we don't really get that line. But when he says it for the first time, you get this whoosh and rush of the audience saying, I wasn't expecting that. That's a good line. Yes. Just to give one little example as well, this is not an example of a sitcom, but a film. The John Cleese film, Privates on Parade, I think it was his biography, or one of his biographies, which referred to the fact that towards the end of that film, I think it's even just in a section running with the credits, John Cleese does a little silly walk. And this was primarily for the amusement of the other actors and the crew. It's just something that gets them thrown in to the end credits in the same way as you get outtakes and smoking the bandit and so on. When the trailer was released for the film, that clip was included in the trailer. And this upset John Cleese because it made out that this was a sort of a, a Python slash faulty type film, which it really wasn't at all. But then it just it sets the the audience's expectations right from from right from the get go. DCT, what are your thoughts about the expectation of the audience coming into this show? Well, it depending on which episode. With series one, episode one, like you said, it was reminiscent of Kipper in the Corpse Faulty Towers, with the use of a corpse. It it seems to be despite the fact that you have the macabre element, say, of Martian and Renwick from Hot Metal and Whoops Apocalypse in the eighties and a certain grimness in that respect. And of course, going further back to Faulty Towers with the use of the corpse as a prop, essentially. And even somewhere along the lines, you have Weekend at Bernie's. But the 90s seemed pretty much, when it comes to sitcoms, obsessed with sex and death. Moffat, in regards to chalk, sex is a pretty consistent thing, more so. There's a few grim moments, a few controversial quotes, especially from Slat, observations. But for the most part, it's it's in, certainly when lay further down the line with coupling, where the sex is emphasised. Between Moffat, Simon Nye, and the likes of... Uh, well, Guy Jenkins actually did a one-off called Sex and Death with Martin Clunes. Uh, they, all, they all tend to put focus on that. It was sort of a darker era where 
sex was always talked about, death never was. So by putting them in contrast together in a comedic format, it somehow worked as a formula, primarily. With Men Behaving Badly, there's some notoriously violent moments, uh, rather graphic moments, specifically a dream sequence that features Martin Clunes' character Gary getting scissors in the neck. Also, um, Tony tattooing himself rather aggressively and bleeding through his trousers. Whereas, even with Paul Macon, with Nightingales, one of the main characters is a corpse, the fourth security guard. So it seems to be something that was that emerged predominantly throughout the 90s onwards, where it was about this contrast between sex and death. And it was, I, I think with Chalk, they focus primarily was on sex, but it was interesting to me the fact that they, they kicked off everything in series one episode one with the with a corpse being the gag but of course that isn't to say there aren't then the occasional reference for example like with that biology scene from series two we were talking about earlier the he's you know his hands are bloodied we don't obviously see it but then we see a bag that apparently has the remains of the rabbit in there's there's quite a few elements in that respect it it, it seemed to be a developing theme in the 90, in 90s british comedy i was gonna say that like you were saying, that sex has had a theme through 90s comedy and all like that. Wherever you look in 90s comedy, say in 90s sitcoms, it wants to push as far as it can. In bottom, you get sort of slapstick violence. Men behaving badly pushes the um, sexual envelope, especially for later episodes and the final episodes uh, talking about masturbation. These sitcoms want to push it. The audience demand it. Through the 70s and 80s, they have gone through a sort of twee period for sitcoms, like Butterflies and the live birds and other series and now audience in the 90s were demanding more which relate to issues which affect them almost trying to be like not right on sitcoms but more in tune with the time yeah um and it's certainly a trait that runs through sitcoms of the 70s and early 80s that sex is quite often the central theme but it's never referred to the word itself is never said the act never takes place certainly not on the screen and quite often not even off screen uh, it, it's, it's sort of implied that a character might be on the make so to speak but doesn't get anywhere and it's odd that it is so often it's a theme that's running through entire episodes sometimes through entire series through entire characterizations. in chalk now you've got slap being faulty now you've also got mr carpdale a person who rarely utters anything but expletives now you can almost say Right, okay, because around the same time you had Father Jack and Father Ted doing the same sort of thing, doing expletives and letting out words like arse and girls. Is a similar sort of character. These two sitcoms, they're almost like a world apart, but they've got this same sort of character. It is almost like a theme, like we were saying sex, we were saying death, swearing as well now before that can you imagine say a sitcom character swearing 
if you get what I mean. Okay, you had the young ones, say Rick and Vivian, swearing at each other, not using the F word or anything like that, using other words. And by the 90s, it was more sort of commonplace. I do remember a Dave Allen stand-up series around about 1990 on BBC One. And in the first episode of that series, he used the F word in the punchline to the last joke. If I remember correctly, I think there was even questions asked in Parliament about that. Uh, and the example that was given by the particular MP in question was that, um, oh, uh, th- this was immediately before Match of the Day, uh, so we can't have this kind of language going out now because you know children might have been waiting to watch the football and so on. It's quite hard to imagine nowadays any use of the F word getting that level of publicity. But of course, as with anything else, it's going to be a first time for anything. And I think that over the years, when you look back at uh, sort of television pushing the envelope with sitcoms and all shows and so on, you get a sense that there's, there's so far that they can go, and every once in a while, they will, in the eyes of the audience, or perhaps in the eyes of the, um, the hierarchy, or whatever it may be, they, they overstep the mark. But sometimes it comes down to just what is the audience appreciation, what's the audience feedback that they get as to then whether they're going to continue with something. Um, Men Behaving Badly is a really good example because Men Behaving Badly was talking about subjects that you wouldn't normally get covered in a mainstream, even you know slightly post-Watershed, BBC One sitcom. So it was quite daring for its time. And yet, the episode that went out on Christmas Day 1998 the BBC then later said that they shouldn't have put out on Christmas Day because its theme was so overtly sexual. And it wasn't so much that the content was going to shock, it was more just the fact that it was Christmas Day. Yes, it was Christmas Day and all like that. Okay, the whole family's gathered round. But when you think about more people who watch things nowadays, that they're not as easily shocked. There are only... A small group of people, like you were saying, the MP shot by uh, Dave Allen's use of the F word. That it's sad to say, but you do get not a huge majority, but a small minority of people who get angry for angry's sake. It is a sort of perfect example, which is used um, through Saxgate and all like that. And we're seeing it time and time again that people have done that, whereas the general public, they don't mind. Their tastes have moved on in comedy. DCT, I want to step back now to something that you mentioned earlier on. You talked about the frequency of misunderstandings and it being a theme throughout this particular series. I'll give you an example of misunderstandings in in sitcom. A friend of mine is a big, big fan of Faulty Towers. The episode of Basil and Sybil's anniversary, where Sybil thinks that Basil's forgotten the anniversary and off she goes, and then Basil's left to deal with all the guests coming round. My friend said to me once after we'd seen this, you know, why didn't Basil just tell them? (laughs) I said, what do you mean? I said, well, what did he have to lose? Why didn't he just say to the guests... I was keeping it a surprise from her, and she's she's walked out. I mean, there wasn't any necessity for him to actually disguise it to keep it from them as such. For obviously, there's a necessity as far as the plot's concerned, as far as it's, it's going to drive the, the narrative. But quite often, when you see, like for example, in that first episode of Chalk, quite often when you see these misunderstandings occurring, 
You can't help but sort of shout at the TV. Why don't you just spit it out? Why don't you just come out with it? Stop, stop all this sort of pussyfooting and all this. There really is something I have to tell you and so on. Just shout. He's in the cupboard for Christ's sake. But of course, if you have everybody just sort of speak in uh, plain English and definitive terms and so on, you're not going to have much of a plot left. But yeah, it's something which is... I think it's fair to say that it was something which was particularly prevalent at that time. You also had I'm Alan Partridge as well. You had the British Empire. You had shows which you could say dealt with the comedy of embarrassment as a central theme. It's also a matter of pride for the characters as well. It's essentially, there are probably many sitcom plots that would be condensed down to a one-minute conversation if it was two people being honest. (laughs) But to make it a and a half an hour of comedy to get from A to B, you need this middle ground of a character who is holding that process back through their own insecurities or sense of pride. So like, for example, with I'm Alan Partridge, when you have Alan trying to act as if he has a professional business going on in front of his potential South African investor. And of course, once again, in chalk as well, when you have many occasions of Eric Slat covering things up, more so in series two for slightly more valid reasons. Series one, not so much. But yeah, also British Empire. A lot of the time, it's a man trying to save face, a man trying to make things appear as if they're running like clockwork and everything is efficient but that's where the comedy comes from it's about the great cover-up and that is a a very common trope i would say i think you 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 could you also extend that by saying i think this probably uh, applies to the example of faulty in that episode in the anniversary episode is that sometimes characters will just do certain things out of habit you may get people for example who are just simply compulsive liars, or other people who are just control freaks. And for whatever reason, they just feel the need to act in a certain way. So sometimes it will fit the narrative, sometimes it will fit that particular character's behavioural tendencies. It's nice when you get a nice sort of balance in between so that it doesn't stand out too much in a particular episode. You you don't suddenly think to yourself, if that person was just to take five seconds uh, and count to ten, then everything would be all right. But Boggs, in, on the subject of misunderstandings and so on, comedy of embarrassment, it's something that I don't see quite as much of on television these days with things like, you still see it in things like Miranda, for example, but with other shows, shows, for example, like 2012, it's almost, in some ways, it's almost the the opposite. It's almost like sometimes characters are oblivious to how they're behaving and how they're being received by other people. Yeah. It's a case where, like you said with your two examples there, Miranda, it plays it for the embarrassment factor. But Miranda goes back to that sort of almost traditional style of sitcom, whereas 2012 is a sort of non-audience mockumentary style. But it's almost that people expect, say, people in power to not realise that they are in embarrassing situations. But it's like we expect our politicians to say, oh, they are making mistakes and um, things like that. It's a strange one to think that the embarrassment factor has almost dropped out of comedy. When you look at Miranda, like I said, is an older type sitcom, and that would be played for laughs over many sitcoms. 
it's like something which is, without being cheesy, what's Vicar, there goes my trousers, if you get what I mean. It's sort of played for that embarrassment. But people, it's almost like they act like nothing happened and go along. We demand it of people now. It's an embarrassing situation. Oh, just get on with it. Yeah. On the subject of Whoops, There Go My Trousers, Vicar, uh, but if anybody hasn't seen episode 5 of It's Kevin, do check that out. When we're recording this, it's just been on the day before, and that features the finals of the outraged 1970s sitcom Vicar contest, uh, which is well worth a look. Another sort of strand of the comedy of embarrassment that was sort of prevalent for maybe about sort of 10 years or so, and I suppose you could say it's still around here and there, uh, is that style which was popularised by The Office. And that is, you obviously don't have any studio audience reactions, no audience there, but you have lengthy pauses and bemused reactions from people. While in outrage reactions, you have bemused people and you have people who are simply uncomfortable. In those gaps where you've got almost nothing happening, you're meant to feel like that's the space where people should cringe themselves. The audience at home should supply their own reaction to what's just happened on screen. So, DCT, to head back to Chalk, are you intrigued to see perhaps what would have happened to those characters had there been a Series 3, for example? Well, by the time Series 2 ends, you have a couple of slight resolutions. You have Janet and Eric finding a common ground in that Janet realises all along Eric has been protecting her from the truth of her own potential infertility, although that's not directly referred to, that's pretty much implied. And by doing so, he's been humiliating himself for, for the very least, series, most of the whole of Series 2. With Susie, and we haven't mentioned her unrequited situation, uh, Dan McGill, another teacher who slowly but surely over the course of the series goes from merely trying it on with her constantly to having an unrequited love for her, although it's mainly about sex. But by the end of series two, it's implied that she feels a little bit of that back. So it left it it left it all in all relatively ambiguous, but there wasn't a huge amount of direction it could go. If we take series two, episode two, with the secondary character, Miss Tripley, she has her whole arc in that one episode, and then it just reverts back to her original self from then on, because we are introduced to her previously, where in, in flashbacks we find that uh, Eric Slat can't bring himself to sack her, despite her lack of abilities as a teacher, and her general behaviour and, and eccentricities, and then she is transformed when she has sex for the first time, and then appears in a completely different, far more confident guise, and then is broken again by the same man who, as it turns out, slap then punches in the face and escorts out the building. So some some of these characters have resolution. There's a character who is is rather peculiar in that they don't really have any kind of consistency. Is um the character there's a character who has a beard and glasses who just basically walks around swearing. More so in series one. He's definitely in series two, but barely. And that's another thing about series two as well. It's far more flimsy with the secondary characters. The sports teacher makes far less of an appearance, despite the fact that in series one it's revealed that he's a sadomasochist. 
We also have a religious studies teacher introduced in the second series who appears and disappears on and off throughout the series and seems somewhat deluded. And initially you think it's he's relatively normal in comparison to the others, but he's not. And goes, oh, well, I must be Satan. Let's not forget the transition of headmasters between series one and series two with John Wells playing Nixon in series one and... John F. Kennedy being played by Duncan Preston in Series 2 because John Wells was too ill to be involved with Series 2. And and even then, there was a very conscious effort of pretty much making those characters more or less exactly the same. There's no real element of development in either characters, as far as I could gather. Something's even alluded to in the, uh, the last episode of Series 2. There's a nice little sort of nod to that fact. Yes. Yeah, oh, completely. Yes, I forgot about that. Where Kennedy reads a note... He makes an announcement about Nixon, then reads a note from Nixon, and it turns out Nixon says exactly the same thing that Kennedy just said. And so, yes, that, I forgot about that. That's a, that is a nice nice element. It's, it makes it very self-aware of the fact that they've made no conscious effort of actually evolving the character at all. I'd say out of all the characters that do evolve, of course, I would say it'd have to be, without a doubt, Eric Slap, because he... Series 1 was essentially a showcase of all his faults without really giving much of a reasoning behind them. Maybe perhaps with the exception of Episode 6 of Series 1, the somewhat creepy episode where there's a massive indication that his mother is like his wife. Whereas in Series 2, it turns out that a lot of his reasonings, a lot of his behavior is it's the big cover-up. He's been protecting his wife from the truth by allowing for people to believe that he is impotent or seedless, I think is the... Uh... I was going to say, as, as Delboy described, uh, Boise, a Jaffa. There was one aspect that I felt somewhat disappointed with was that it didn't become more of an ensemble piece. I felt that there was a lot of scope there with the individual characters to bring them in more into the storylines and I didn't really feel that I, I knew a great deal about many of them, you mentioned yourself, that the character who, who only speaks in expletives and by the time we get to uh, episode 1 of season 2, some of the characters have virtually no dialogue in that at all. I understand that there is this device of Richard Lumsden coming in so therefore he's a focus of a lot of that episode but it would have been nice to see other people coming in more in the same way that we've seen uh, shows like Still Game for example, develop over the years. That's the thing. I think having an ensemble cast, but then bringing in more characters as one-offs. It just occurred to me, in regards to the Faulty Towers comparison, again, there's that episode in Series 1 that is about the inspectors and him essentially trying to win them over by the fact that he pretends to be several different people in front of the one that happens to be blind. And so, very much like uh, the Hotel Inspectors, it's about trying to impress the wrong people. In this case, it's trying to impress the right person by acting as someone else. Sort of a reverse of it, essentially. That just occurred to me. But there you go, you have three characters, three inspectors in that, in that one episode. The neighbour from One Foot in the Grave, the friend of the Meldrews, features in uh, uh, Series 2. And it, it's just various, various cameos, various moments where all these characters are introduced. But it, at the same time, it would have been, I agree, it would have been better to perhaps get a bit more scope with the ensemble that was already there. With Chalk, it is sort of individualistic, all these characters. Now, you talk about an ensemble piece, but it's almost like they're all wanting 
to compete to be the um, one person who gets their own sitcom. We know that Eric Slat's a sort of lead character, but it's almost like they're all fighting to be the lead character, and that sort of confuses Chalk a bit. It's interesting that the one episode which is quite a strong ensemble piece, which is a staff meeting from series one, that that actually happened pretty much by accident because the budget was running so low that Stephen Moffat created an episode which would not have any other guest actors in it. And it would have been nice to see a bit more of that. And I think sometimes, I mean, shows that do have a low budget, a show, for example, like The Smoking Room, which by design is an ensemble piece, but also does have a tight budget and doesn't have the scope for multiple sets or outside work and so on, those shows can sometimes work very well. They work within the limitations uh, in which they're set. So to bring our discussion on Chalk to conclusion, Bogginstrovia, first of all, are you intrigued to see more episodes? Yes, I am intrigued to uh, see more of the um, first series episodes. Having seen series two, episode six, I want to see where it started and how it developed to the end, how we sort of got the conclusion that we did, um, that the characters were all tied up, and how exactly, how Susie can go from apathy in the first episode, and how she gets more tougher by spending more time in the school, and what's going on around her. Um, DCT, how about yourself? I know you've seen quite a few of the episodes, but... um... Would you have liked to have seen a series three, for example? I wouldn't have minded a series three, although I'm not entirely sure how further it could have gone, really. I'd like to have think, had they continued, they would have made more use of the secondary characters, and perhaps we would have learned a little bit more about everyone involved. Maybe there wasn't much further they could go with the opportunity of Janet and Eric Slat having a child, unless they go in a slightly darker or different direction. But certain certain things didn't need to be resolved, like with Susie and Dan, will they, won't they scenario. Just that little hint of ambiguity at the end of series two, where it's revealed that she may be having the same thoughts as, as him, mutual feelings. It, it didn't need to go further, I don't think. I think, it, I think it did all it needed to do for the most part. I, I do like the fact that the BBC decided to commission a second series before the first series came out. Although ambitious, as far as I'm aware, that's not generally done that often. Uh, unless I'm willing to, if anyone's got any examples, but I can't think of any where that is done that often on the BBC specifically. Mm-hmm. I, uh, yeah, I, likewise, I'm drawing a blank, but I, I'm sure that there have been some examples. Boggs, did you have any in mind? I can't remember any. I think it's more a modern phenomenon that TV companies would do that now. But apart from that, not really any off the top of my head. Well, for myself, yeah, I'm interested to see more episodes of Chalk. I've really enjoyed... More than any other, I really enjoyed the first episode of Series 2. And I do, I'm do. i a big fan of Richard Lumsden in a way, so I would love to have seen more of him in the series. But uh, yeah, I found that one much more fun. The, the first episode of Series 1, to me, was uh, a little bit on the dark side, which is, which is fine. But uh, Series 2 seemed to be perhaps a little bit more self-confident in what it was trying to do. Now, I wasn't going to bring this up, but I think people listening to this in the chat room are bound to have mentioned this in drawn comparisons with it, so I will just ask finally the ultimate cliche, Chalk versus Hardwick House. Now, 
obviously it's an unfair comparison because we only have two episodes of Hardwick House that we can compare it to. But do we think perhaps Shock got to the point where it could go out, whereas Hardwick House perhaps was, say, ten years ahead of its time and also on the wrong side of the watershed? I would say that um, Hardwick House, now, like you said, only two episodes were made and it was ahead of its time. But let's not forget around that time that ITV were sort of changing and especially with sitcoms and comedy from Central. Now, around a sort of three, four-year period, you had Spitting Image starting, you had Girls on Top, and also Hardwick House being made by Central. And, of course, they were willing to take a risk with it. Because when you look at, say, Thames's output of sitcoms, there was nothing to say that they were actually trying to push the envelope by having something different. DCT, any thoughts on Hardwick House at all? Like I say, it is a bit of a cliche to compare Shock to that, or even Please Sir, just by nature of them being set in the classroom, but any thoughts on that at all? Well, it's it's interesting because I can think of three, including Chalk and Hardwick House, I can think of three educational-based sitcoms off the top of my head. Actually, no, four. Chronologically speaking, we have Hardwick House, or only two episodes were shown of, we have Bonjour La Classe, which I believe that only lasted maybe one or two. It was the one series, yes. Then, of course, we have Chalk. And then this century, we have had Campus. Now, Campus, once again, only lasted one series. That had no... And this is... I will save my ranting <laughs> for, for as and when we get to Campus as an episode. But that had no empathy there was no element of empathy for any of those characters. Harbick House, I would consider more of a showcase, uh, in a way, of the comedic talent of the time. And I think without having seen the other episodes, I'd like to think that's kind of how what the evolution of it was. That essentially you have all these familiar faces, certainly of, of that time, making appearances. Uh, I think the chaos of that atmosphere applied, applied to the time, applied to the attitude, the comedic attitude of the time. Whereas with... Bonjour La Classe was a far more quaint affair, if I'm not mistaken. It was a far more um, prestigious element going on. And, it's a date. Uh, not, so yes. Compared to say it's a date, as sort of pre-watershed sitcom. Yeah. Certainly, yes. No, you said about the uh, forward DCT, but also coming soon, that the BBC are also doing the David Williams sitcom, Big School. Ooh. So you've got possibly that one as well. Now, they've announced people like Catherine Tate, Philip Lannister, and Williams himself starring. Now, there's one of two ways it can go, right? It can either go the way of chalk, like we've discussed with um, uh, the merry things which have happened with it during this podcast, or... It could be a success. Now, we don't know that, as it's only being filmed now. We don't really know how it's going to go. But, of course, it's... You said campus there, but it is the BBC's first educational sitcom in a long while. Yeah, I uh, maybe if it... I would say that out of the examples we had there, I'd say Chalk... Well, it lasted more than a series. 
whereas whereas Harbuck House two episodes were aired, Bonjour Le Class was one series, Chalk was two, and Campus was one. So if so, yeah, maybe with Big School they might maybe they'll finally crack it. Maybe it's I, I think it's certainly also to do with the atmosphere as well, the the educate the attitude towards education and so forth i think of each era that certainly can affect that as well potentially and um yeah i did stephen moffat's uh, made his views on education very clear and in part comes through in the slightly more mean slightly more cynical series one in that respect not so much of it in series two but because it focuses more on being antagonistic towards each other in terms of the teachers but certainly in series one there's criticism of children yeah if they've got piercings or you know young young pregnancies and so forth whereas series two it kind of doesn't really refer to that as much so i yeah maybe maybe big top will be um the first uh, educational based sitcom in a long while to actually well since please sir i'm just can i just interrupt you there you did say big top (laughs) big top i wasn't gonna say it i did hear it yeah but i was gonna say big top wasn't remotely educational well, it, it, if we didn't learn anything from Big Top, what can we learn? We will definitely, yeah. at some point, we will definitely cover Big uh, Big Top uh, in a future sitcom. Just to give one other example of partially based on a school sitcom, one that I really enjoyed, Upper Garden Path. Of course, Izzy is a school teacher, and there's quite a lot of interaction in the staff room and also in the classroom as well. Uh, and that's much more, I suppose you would say, much more realistic portrayal. Uh, of the interaction between the teacher and the class and so on and the uh, the class members are, are real people in themselves um, they have their own characteristics and not just there as the uh, the butt of a joke or whatever it may be uh, but of course we're bound to cover that at some point in the future just to include then on the subject of chalk of course this podcast is produced in association with cooked and bombed and DCT, I know that you have in your hand there, you have a nice little piece of feedback from cab member Squiddy, who was in the audience for the final episode of Series 2 of Chalk. I do indeed. From Squiddy, who's at Squiddy UK on Twitter, he has basically said that it was the first recording he went to, that is to say Series 2, Episode 6. His dad took him because... Uh, his dad took him to the first recording they ever went to, which was another school-based sitcom called Wacko. He was in his school uniform because it was after school. Ted Robbins, legendary Ted Robbins, was the warm-up, handing out lollipops to good sports in the audience. Squiddy received one because he was a Chris Evans lookalike, i.e. he had glasses. Um, that's all he partially re- remembers, from, aside from the headmaster dressed as Elvis, uh, Kennedy as Elvis. Someone did do an introduction explaining that John Wells hadn't returned as headmaster Richard Nixon, so they had to replace him with headmaster John F. Kennedy. He forgets he did that, but he suspects it might have been Stephen Moffat himself. Uh, in response to that, he also remembers points of view playing clips of David Bamber intercut with John Cleese in Faulty Towers with comments of along the lines of haven't we seen haven't we seen this before which is interesting bearing in mind that in their press release of series one before it came out BBC were in a positive way comparing it to Faulty Towers but unfortunately with David Bamber certainly in series one episode one it's yes right you know kind of this John Cleese frustration element but but i'm glad to see that that moved on for the most part in series two and that it that that it essentially became what it what it needed to be and um for the most part was a success thank you dct and thank you to bog and strovia thank you both for your insight into chalk just to do a little bit of housekeeping before we conclude this show as i said is produced in association with cooked and bombed if you listen to this show on cab radio then after 
we're finished, then there'll be extra material exclusive to Cab Radio and you can interact with the members in the chat room, discuss the show a little bit more, discuss other sitcom related matters and so on. We are The Sitcom Club on Twitter and also you can find us at sitcomclub.com and you'll find information on there about our forthcoming episodes. Finally, if you have any suggestions for shows that you'd like us to cover in a future episode of the Sitcom Club, then you can email your suggestion to feedback at sitcomclub.com. So, from myself, Mooncat and Co., DCT. Good night. Bogenstrovia. Goodbye for now. Thanks very much indeed for listening. Join us again soon on the Sitcom Club. <laughs>